Men, thanks for listening to our 920 Man Challenge podcast. These are Bible teachings that are meant to be discussed alongside other men in community at our Blankenbaker Man Challenge gathering, where we prioritize developing a competent and confident understanding of who Jesus is and authentic and intentional male relationships. We hope this teaching of God's Word grows your relationship with the Lord, and we urge you to unpack it in your relationship with others. Enjoy! All right, guys. Um, so I love being here. Thank you guys for having me. Uh, Man Challenge is one of my favorite places to be. It's just an honor to stand with you and unpack scripture together. So thank you guys for diving in and getting up early to do it. I'm sure for some of you it's normal, for some of you it's tough, but either way, you got up early and you're here, and it's an honor to be able to stand with you and open God's word together. Um, so I'm excited to do that. So our whole church right now, you guys know, is going through the fruit of the Spirit. We're talking about the fruit of the Spirit, and that's a list that comes from Galatians chapter 5 when the Apostle Paul was writing to a church of people in Galatia. And what he did actually is he said, he was telling them some things that they shouldn't be doing. So he said the acts of the flesh, like the things that you naturally want to do, are pretty obvious and aren't good. Things like sexual immorality and drunkenness and jealousy and fighting and stuff like that. He said, that's obvious, don't do that. Instead, let's let the Spirit, let's let the Holy Spirit produce His fruit in our lives. So don't do what you naturally want to do in yourself, but do what the Holy Spirit wants to do in you and through you. And that's a list that goes like this, love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. So that's what you guys are studying through. That's what our whole church is studying through together. So today we're going to talk about kindness and goodness, kindness and goodness from that list. And here in Manchester, you guys have been looking at the end of Jesus's life in um, the gospel of Mark to see how Jesus lives these things out, which is the best place to look, right? The perfect place to look is how Jesus lets the Holy Spirit produce good fruit in his life instead of just doing sinful, awful things that Jesus didn't do. So we can look at him and see an example of what it looks like to walk with the Spirit. So go ahead and open up to Mark chapter 14. If you're not there yet, we're going to be there again today. I mean, we'll get there in just a little bit. Mark chapter 14, and we'll start in verse 43 when we get there. Mark 14, 43. Now here's how I see this passage I and mean, what we're going to talk about today. It's like a snapshot. And all these things you've been looking at in Jesus's life, really most things we look at in the life of Jesus are just a snapshot of who he is and what he did, right? It's not like the whole thing. He lived for 33 years and we've got 28 chapters in Matthew so, and 16 in Mark. So we don't have everything, we get snapshots. So it's just like a snapshot of what he was like, but just like any snapshot, any picture, any little glimpse into your life or mine or anyone else's, there's so much more going on around it, beneath it, right? Um, it's kind of like your heroes when you were a kid. Do you have those? You guys can probably think of like, oh, this was my favorite athlete, person, artist, whatever. Uh, one of mine was Barry Sanders, one of my kind of heroes as a kid. And we were Lions fans in my house, which is tough. But I was a Barry Sanders fan. I remember watching him and just being amazed, you know, watching him like sand pass through the fingers of the defense. And he's so fast and uh, just makes people fall, literally fall down trying to tackle. I just remember watching him and thinking like, that is the most amazing thing I've ever seen. And I also remember watching the Lions still lose, even with, with him running around. But I remember watching Barry Sanders and thinking, it would be easy to think as an eight, nine, 10-year-old kid, I wish I could be like that. I wish I could do that. It'd be so cool to be like Barry Sanders, right? I wish I could just put on the cool uniform and do it. I had the jersey, didn't help, didn't help anything. I wish I could do that, but you can't. And the thing is with Barry Sanders and everything else, you see this glimpse of amazing and I know, fortunately, as an eight, nine, 10-year-old kid, you know, I, I knew even as a little whippersnapper, I'm no Barry Sanders. 
But it's easy in those moments when you look at somebody that you just look up to, that you want to be like, that's so amazing, that's so impressive. You see the snapshot and you want that snapshot. But what you don't see when Barry Sanders is scoring a touchdown is decades of eating right and practicing hard and running and running and running and running and all the things that go into it. You don't see that. You see the snapshot. But there's a whole lot that builds up to it that creates the environment so that he can go score that touchdown. You know what I mean? Uh, that's true of Barry Sanders. Um, I remember seeing things my grandpa would make uh, in his wood shop. He was a really good woodworker. That's what he did, kind of retired and just worked with wood all the time. And I remember working with him in his shop and being amazed at the things he would make. Little toy cars that would work really well, um, tables, uh, rocking horses, things like that that were beautiful. You know, when you would see these things he would produce, and I would think, I want to do that. And I'd go into the shop with him, and like there's a huge saw and a huge sander and all this, like, oh my gosh, you know, all I can do is push the button and then like stand back. And I can't produce what he produced. I remember working on an old Ford Mustang with my grandpa and just watching him do stuff to get that engine running. And I'm like, I don't, you know, he would ask me to grab a tool, and I'm like, I don't know what that is, you know. Grab that tool and turn this thing. What is that? What's, what bolt? What are you talking about? I just didn't know. But then the Mustang's working, and it's like, well, I want to do that. And it's easy to look at the produced wood work. It's easy to look at the Mustang that's running again and say, I want to be like that. But what you don't see is the engineering degree. And what you don't see is decades of working at Ford, where he helped build those engines, right? That's how he can do that. I can't see the snapshot and just do it. So I want to encourage us, even as we're looking at Jesus, not to just look at a snapshot and go, whoa, he's perfect. That's amazing. I could never... I want to look at the snapshot and try to peel back another layer deeper because I think there's a few clues, even in this text we're going to read today, uh, just a few clues that show us some principles underneath how he acted, that show us a life that builds to a pressure-packed moment so that when Jesus is under pressure, kindness and goodness come out. It's not just that on a whim he shows up and it's perfect. I think it's a life that builds to kindness and goodness coming out under pressure. Does that make sense? You with me on that? So let's look at this snapshot of Jesus and then see if we can peel back a little bit more and see what we can find. Because I know um, that this can be life-giving to us. It has been for me as I've been studying. So let's look at Mark chapter 14 and verse 43. It says, just as he was speaking, so this is Jesus speaking after he's been praying. He's told his disciples, Judas is on the way. Let's get up and get ready. Things are about to go down. So just as he was speaking, Judas, one of the 12, appeared. With him was a crowd armed with swords and clubs sent from the chief priests, the teachers of the law, and the elders. So compare that just for a minute. Jesus in private in the garden praying, his friends sleeping, and then like an armed guard comes to arrest him. It's like it feels crazy even when you read the story. But that's how nervous they were. That's how big of a deal this was. So verse 44, now the betrayer, Judas, had arranged a signal with them. The one I kiss is the man. Arrest him and lead him away under guard. Going at once to Jesus, Judas said, Rabbi, and kissed him, which would have been like a really intimate, friendly greeting, right? So Judas runs up and is like, oh, my good friend. And that's the sign that turns the mob loose on Jesus. Goes up to him and kissed him. Verse 46, the men seized Jesus and arrested him. Then one of those standing near drew his sword and struck the servant of the high priest, cutting off his ear. The Gospel of John tells us that that's Peter. Uh, the disciple Peter gets so angry, pulls out his sword and just tries to lash out his ear, uh, cuts off this guy's ear. Other gospels also tell us that Jesus puts it back, which is crazy, but Mark doesn't get into that. Verse 48, am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? Every day I was with you teaching in the temple courts and you did not arrest me. 
but the scriptures must be fulfilled. Then everyone deserted him and fled. Then let me just read these next couple of verses. It's not actually part of our text, but I, I got to finish the section, and I think it's interesting. So it says, a young man wearing nothing but a linen garment was following Jesus. When they seized him, he fled naked, leaving his garment behind. For one, just like, what? What is that doing here? That's so crazy. Um, but I think it's interesting. A lot of um, Bible scholars think that that is Mark the Mark that this gospel is named after. And then maybe that's why we have some of this inside information is that Mark was there, like a young guy just trying to tag along. Um, other sources also say that Mark, Mark's mentor was probably Peter. Um, so Mark is trying to hang around, learn as much as he can. He kind of gets grabbed and runs away and he's embarrassed. Um, so that's why this is the only gospel that includes that little detail. Maybe because it's the guy that the gospel was written by. Isn't that interesting? Doesn't have anything to do with our story today. But it's interesting. Okay, um, so this story in Mark chapter 14, this snapshot of Jesus' life. So we see this snapshot of perfection. We see these little glimpses of Jesus under pressure. I want to be like that. I want to emulate it. I want to be able to do it. I want to be able to respond in a moment like this when everything is going wrong, when people are turned against me, when everything I, that I am afraid of is coming true. I want to be able to respond like Jesus, calm, cool not reactive, not angry. I wish I could do that. Um, I wish I could be, it's not just this, it's other places in Jesus's life too, right? Like I wish I could be as bold as Jesus when he's facing difficult conversations. But honestly, conflict is really hard for me. I don't know if anybody else in the room is like that. I see Jesus just like stone faced taking on hard stuff and I'm like, man, I would be anxious for a week leading up to that, you know? I wish I could be as consistent as Jesus and not be so emotionally like volatile sometimes. Maybe in a room full of men, it's like, I'm saying emotionally volatile. I can be emotionally fragile. If you guys were honest, you'd be there too. Now that doesn't mean that we're in a heap crying all the time, but I can be just as emotionally volatile as anyone else you would put to. Things don't go right, I'm tired, I've had a hard day, I'm stressed, I feel entitled to something. I'm on edge. I don't wanna be that way. You wanna be that way? And I see Jesus consistent and steady, and unfazed. Man, I want that. I want that in my life. How do I do it? I wish I could stare a storm in the face and not let fear and worry and anxiety get the best of me and overwhelm me and just send me into, you know, grip-fisted. Jesus stares it in the face. Trust God enough to be okay. Man, I wish I could do that. How do we, how do we get there? So in this story, Jesus is betrayed by a friend. He doesn't lose his temper. Jesus is arrested unfairly. He doesn't fight back. Jesus is falsely represented. And he doesn't get defensive. That's amazing. He's falsely, people are falsely saying things about him and his character. Does he fight back? Does he defend? Does he speak up? Does he power up? He just says, well, scripture's gonna be fulfilled. Let's do what we gotta do. That's amazing. I want that. I want to be able to respond with kindness and goodness like that. How does he do it? So here's what I think and what I hope will help us this morning. Jesus didn't just decide in this moment that he should be kind and good. I don't think it's like the pressure came on and he's like, oh, time for my kindness to come out. I don't think that's how it works. There's a lot more that built up to this snapshot in his life. It makes him the kind of man who can respond this way. So here's what I would say. Even for Jesus, even for Jesus, this wasn't just that he's like Superman in the moment and just responds perfectly. Jesus lived a whole life, decades up to this point, learning scripture, praying, being obedient to God. And that led to moments like this at the end of his life where we can see this incredible fruit. So it's still hard, really hard, really hard for us to emulate it, to carry ourselves like Jesus does. But when there's a strong foundation, when we can try to figure out what's this foundation he's living on, then I think it's easier 
to build off of that. Here's another way to say it. When the roots are healthy, the fruit will be good. That's what I want to remind you of today, remind us all of today. When our roots are healthy and dug down deep in the right place, then the fruit that our life produces will be good because the roots are healthy. When our roots are shallow or when our roots are in the wrong place, then the fruit it's going to produce is going to be shallow or coming from the wrong place. But when the roots are healthy, the fruit will be good. So what are the roots here? What are Jesus' roots? What are the things that lay the foundation? I think in this story we see a few clues to what I would just call like gospel principles, like deep spiritual truths that the gospel makes reality in the world that Jesus builds his life on. And I think there's little clues to how he might be thinking, how he might be reacting, what he might be drawing from in this story that are the same principles that we operate our lives by when we're really sold out to Jesus. So I wanna kinda unpack those gospel principles and say these are things that are true because Jesus made them true in the world, because Jesus set the gospel into motion and fulfilled it. And because of that, we live by these same things he does. And when our mind is focused on that, the fruit comes out. Does that make sense? You with me still? Okay, so here's here's, um, what I see. The first one is this. Don't expect perfect treatment from imperfect people. Don't expect perfect treatment from imperfect people. Jesus knew Judas was coming, right? He says it. Judas is on the way, guys. Let's get ready. But even before that, Jesus has been leading up to this. Somebody sitting at this table with us is going to betray me, right? All of you are clean because of the word I've spoken to you, but ah, not one of you. Like Jesus knows something's about to happen. And some of that is because he is the omniscient son of God in human flesh. Some of that I think is because Jesus knows I'm living in a fallen world where sin is running the show behind the scenes in so many hearts. So I'm not going to expect that all of these guys are going to be perfect all the time. I think Jesus had a realistic view of a world impacted deeply by sin. And so he's not carrying around an entitlement to be treated perfectly all the time. Does that make sense? So when I feel entitled to be treated a certain way, I don't know about you, But when I feel entitled to be treated a certain way, then I also feel entitled to be mad at people when they don't. You know what I mean? Anybody else sometimes? Uh, Now, I'm not talking about like an abusive situation, right? That you you are entitled to be treated with human dignity, okay? Uh, You are responsible to treat others with human dignity. But I think there's a difference between that and just in general saying, I want to be treated like an amazing person that I think that I am, right? I I find, here's an example. Um, I find when I'm done mowing the lawn, which is just like a standard thing that I actually enjoy doing, right? Like I like doing. I find this subtle little nasty thing playing in the back of my mind. I walk in the house after mowing the lawn like I'm the king of the castle. You know, like I have just (laughs) taken care of the grass. Is my water on ice, please? That would be wonderful. Is the couch prepared? You know, I've, and it's so silly and I feel so selfish and so immature when I do that, but it's in my heart. You guys know what I mean? There's those little things like that. You do the dishes and like, well, you know, I don't need a trophy, but a medal would be okay. You know, it's amazing the things that we feel because we're just acting in ways that really are normal. Like that's baseline expectation stuff. But I do that and I feel pretty, you know, like I deserve to be treated pretty well because of it. And when I feel that way, then when it doesn't happen, so quickly I turn to like, well, how dare you? Who do you think you are? Who do you think I am? What's going on here? Where's the respect? You know, it's so amazing how quick our minds can turn into this yucky place because we just have this view that we ought to be treated a certain kind of way. When I feel that way, I find that the fruit that comes out of my life is not the kind of fruit that I want coming out of my life. And it sure doesn't match Paul's list in Galatians 5. Uh, here's, a, here's a 
little thing I see in this text that I think is so cool um, that, that kind of makes this come to life for me um, in the scripture. There's this word that the Gospel of Mark uses all the time. In Greek, it's euthus, um, which is translated sometimes immediately or at once. Uh, Mark uses it a ton. So kind of for reference, Mark, it's, it's kind of a normal word, you know, like, and then uh, immediately they went down to the lake. Like the next thing that happened is they went here. It's kind of a normal transition word. But Mark uses it twice as often as the other three Gospels combined, which is interesting. I mean, it's a normal kind of word, but that's a lot. And if somebody's going to say that word a lot, you know how you probably have a friend or you probably sometimes this guy when you know like, hey, do you realize that you like have this expression that you use all the time? You know what I mean? I wonder if people are listening to Mark being like, man, he's always in a hurry telling stories and has some big thing he's trying to get out. You know, he's just like immediately, immediately, immediately. Sometimes it's translated at once. Sometimes it's translated next. It's translated a lot of ways, but Mark uses it a ton. In this passage, that word in Greek shows up twice. It's harder to see in English, but it shows up twice. The first time is in verse 43, when it says, just as Jesus was speaking. That's that Greek word, immediately. So like there's movement to this. Just as he was speaking, Judas appeared. Now, the next one is in verse 45, when it says, going at once to Jesus, Judas said. So then Judas goes to Jesus and kisses him. Here's why this is so interesting and why I think this Um, fits this point that we can't expect to be treated perfectly by imperfect people because all throughout Mark when that word is used it's like Jesus says something and then Mark says and then immediately they obeyed or Jesus said something and then immediately the demon left Jesus said something and then immediately the crowd is shaken so this is a word that conveys not just movement in the narrative but that conveys that Jesus is the authority in the story does that make sense So all throughout Mark, it's like Jesus spoke, it happened. Jesus showed up, it changed people. Jesus said something, people were rocked. That's what euthus does. So here in this story, it's Judas shows up. But why does Judas show up? Because it was euthus. Jesus was talking and then Judas came. Well, wait, but Judas goes and betrays Jesus, like does the kiss thing and that's the betrayal sign. That's not, like that's not good. Yeah, but it says that he did it at once because Jesus just at once had said it's going to happen. Is that, are you following me on this? I think this is really interesting in this story. So what feels like a story that's happening to Jesus, he's being betrayed, he's being mistreated, he's being taken advantage of, he's being mis- misrepresented. Mark is telling us the story in terms that make me think Jesus is very much in charge of this situation. Jesus isn't going, whoa, I can't believe I'm being treated like this. How dare you do this to me? What am I going to do? How am I going to respond? Jesus is saying, I knew it was going to happen. I know what's going to happen later. I'm unshaken. I can respond how I ought to respond because I'm not reacting out of fear and anger and entitlement. Does that make sense? So again, see the snapshot of Jesus and go, well, he's perfect. Of course he knew Jesus was going to. But wait, wait, wait. We can do that. We can hold on to the fact that we know this is a fallen world that is imperfect and broken and it's going to be difficult in a lot of ways. If I know that, and I know that the only way it's redeemed is by the power of God working to change it, then I can say, okay, hard things are going to happen, unfair things are going to happen, difficult things are going to happen. Am I going to react out of my flesh? Am I going to react out of my anger? Am I going to react and defend? Or am I going to say, I know the one who's in charge of this and I know the one who's going to redeem all of history it's going to be okay, I can be kind. 
And being kind doesn't mean you're out of control. Being kind doesn't mean you're run over. Being kind doesn't mean you're a doormat. Jesus is not a doormat in this story. Jesus is very much in charge of this story and is still kind and good. Isn't that amazing? I think it's because he knows the one who holds the plan. And so he's not phased when it doesn't go exactly how he wants it to go. So when you really deep down believe, when we really deep down believe that the world is broken, will only be fixed by God himself, then it's easier for us to respond with kindness and goodness because we know the people around us are just as broken as we are, right? So I think the gospel getting down deep in our soul can help produce the fruit of kindness and goodness in us because we don't feel a need to control every situation. God's got it. Let him work it out. So here's the second one. Don't expect perfect treatment from imperfect people. The second gospel principle I see at play beneath this snapshot is this. Integrity lasts longer than popularity. Integrity lasts longer than popularity. Now I debated um, back and forth on using that word popularity here because I think we can hear that and be like, you mean like the teenagers thing? Like, you know, I talked to my kids at home about not worrying about being popular. Like, we're a little past that. I, I just want to say the concept of popularity is not just for teenagers, okay? If we really dig back deep, honest, we may not use that word. It may not come out the same ways that it did when you were in middle school or high school. And where we, you know, you might look at your kids and feel like it's petty or you might look at the kids in the youth group that you lead and you're volunteering, you know, with a C group or whatever and look at them and being like, you guys are so worried about popularity and that's so silly. It may not come out the same way, but be honest with yourself a little bit. How many decisions do you make thinking, I wonder what people will think about this? Or I want a car like that one, or I wish that my lawn looked like that one, or I want to be able to travel like that. That's pretty cool. How many decisions do we make? How many thoughts do we have that build around wanting to be, maybe if we replace the word popular, with the word like, I want to be like everyone else. I, I kind of want to do the normal thing. I just want to be normal. Like, I don't want to be weird, right? If you replace that, 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 for me, that hits a little closer to home. Like, I don't want to do the weird thing. I don't want to always, want to always be the weird guy. I don't want to always be behind. When I pull out my phone, people laugh at how small it is. I don't want to always be the, like, I want to be, I want to be normal. I don't want to be the weird guy. You know what I mean? But I would say integrity lasts longer than popularity. I think you know that. I don't think I have to convince you. But let's talk about it. Integrity lasts longer than popularity. Here's what I see um, in Jesus here. Um, there's this line in verse 48 when he says, am I leading a rebellion that you've come out with swords and clubs to capture me? So we already talked about kind of that comparison of this mob coming out at him armed and his guys are in the garden praying, quiet, falling asleep. That's a crazy difference. But there's a cool language thing here too. Um, my NIV says, am I leading a rebellion, said Jesus, which I think is a good translation of what he's trying to convey. Like I'm not, I'm not an armed warrior trying to lead a fight. And his life has proven that out to be true. Some other English translations, some of you guys might have, I think the ESV does this um, and some others, translate it a little bit more like specifically literal what the words are saying, um, that it says like, you're coming at me as if I'm a robber, or you're coming at me as if I'm an armed like fighter, like that's what that word, it's just the word robber in Greek, but it's not just like somebody who steals stuff, like it's sneaky, it's somebody who's like dangerous, it's some, like an armed theft. So that, that word in Greek, you would be scared of that person because they're dangerous and unsafe and untrustworthy. Does that make sense? So Jesus says here, you're coming at me as if I have a track record of being a dangerous, violent criminal. But all I've done is just taught and open. Like everything I've done has been in the light. What are you so afraid of? What's Jesus doing there? I think that's, this is his one, if you could say he defends himself a little bit, this is his one statement. Basically saying, 
you're coming at me as if you're afraid of me and I'm going to fight back. But you've seen my track record. Everything I've done has been in the open. Everything I've done has been in the light. All I've been doing is teaching. So I think that's why this is Jesus' one statement of defense. And it's not that drastic, is it? It's pretty patient, pretty reserved. He's not really fighting. And then he just says, well, okay, go ahead and take me, basically. But this, I think, is Jesus saying, I'll stand on my integrity. You're going to bring false accusations all you want. You're going to accuse me of being a violent robber, criminal. You know I'm not that. You guys are coming at me armed. I've never been armed that you've seen. I've never fought you. So I think Jesus is content to stand on his character and say, over time, this will bear out that I'm not who you say I am. And I have nothing to be afraid of, so I don't feel a need to be defensive. And now look on this side of history, who looks like the bad guy in this story? It's not Jesus, is it? Even, even to, I would say most non-Christians, at least most, wouldn't look at this story and be like, wow, Jesus is so dangerous. They would look at this story and be like, Jesus was a, at least a good kind teacher, right? So history has proven out that Jesus's integrity has lasted far longer than his popularity in this moment. They're wanting him to be a certain kind of leader. They're wanting him to fall into line. They're wanting him to be like all the other rabbis they had. They're wanting him to, to believe and teach the same things in the same ways that they believed and taught. They're wanting him to stop causing so much trouble and stop being so weird. And Jesus just says, you know what? I'm not gonna fight back, which is what the normal response would be. It would be expected that somebody will pull out a sword and strike at this guard. Jesus says, I'm not gonna do the normal, easy, popular thing that would feel like it's my right to do. I'm gonna stand on my integrity that I've built over 33 years and say history will bear out that I am not in the wrong here. His integrity lasts longer than his popularity. It sure does in this moment. Um, so here's what I think we see in this for Jesus that we can take on, um, that I think is so true. I, I just, uh, even as I've been kind of praying through and thinking through this, I've been meditating on this. Um, I think we see it in Jesus. You can win the moment, like you can win any moment, right? You, you fill in the blank of what that is. You can win the moment and lose the fight for your character, right? I think you guys know what I mean by that. My guess is you guys, your, your mind probably goes to a moment, <laughs> you know, where maybe you felt like you won a moment, um, either because you did the easy thing or you did the thing that felt good or you did the thing that made you look good or you did the thing that made you feel important or powerful and you won the moment. But then you look back and say, man, but I had to apologize for it later or I had to clean up a mess later or there's a crack in my heart that I'm still dealing with and trying to fill. I had to come to Jesus and say, Jesus, I let you down in that moment. You won a moment but you lost a battle in that moment for your character that you need to rebuild. So, it, you know, it might be humor. I think this is an easy one. You know, there's a quick little moment where you can say something funny and then it's like, ah, I wish I could pull that back. I want a moment I made everybody laugh, but I made myself look just like them. And now they're thinking, so Christians joke like that too? That's not very good. Um, gossip, it can be this way, right? Like people we want to talk about, have you heard about so-and-so or did you think this? Or yeah, I think that about them too. And in the moment you fit in or in the moment you feel important because you have inside information or in the moment you're kind of winning favor at, at work or at home or with your friend group because you have the piece of information that's the missing piece in the puzzle and it feels important and you win the moment and then you go, man, do people trust me with what they have to say anymore because I'm just talking about it all the time? It could be keeping up with the stuff everyone else has, right? You look around and say, I want to be normal. I want to be like them. And you fight for that moment and then you realize that your budget's out of control or your spending is out of control or your identities and stuff. There's all kinds of things, 
all kinds of things that you could fill in that gap on. It's so easy to win a moment. I think it would have been easy for Jesus to fight back. It would have been easy for Jesus to defend himself and shut them down. How many times did they come at him with questions? And Jesus responded in a way that so confused them that they just walked away because they couldn't deal with it. You think Jesus could have done that? I think he could have done that. But Jesus just says, hey, you're going to treat me like I'm a violent, scary criminal. Okay, you're wrong. History will play it out. And God's going to work in this situation. So I wonder what that might be for us. This is an intense pressure moment um, for Jesus. But I wonder if those things for us um, under pressure would produce fruit or if they would produce things that we need to repent of later. Um, I find that when I live my life in the light, um, when, I'm, when I'm really making those choices in line with integrity, then I don't have anything to hide and I don't have anything to be afraid of, right? It's when I have stuff to hide that I feel fear and I feel insecure and I feel nervous and I feel defensive. It's so much easier to choose kindness and goodness when I'm not afraid and defensive, don't you think? It's so much easier to be kind and good when I'm not afraid, when I'm not hiding, when I'm not trying to defend. It's like, no, I know my character. What am I afraid of? I don't have anything to be afraid of. Um, I just think fear, if you really, this may be, this is in the sermon, but this is maybe even like, take it, take it a step further and think about it later this week. Fear, I think, wreaks havoc on our lives. Don't you think so? And it, I know for me, it can be easy to be like, I'm going to face this situation, I'm going to do it, and I'm going to be okay, I'm going to be strong for my family, I'm going to be strong for the, the team that I lead at work, and we're going to face it. But if I really peel back a couple layers in my heart, there's deep fear in a lot of those areas. You know what I mean? I would just encourage you to wrestle with that, take it down deep a little bit. You're, you probably have more fear than you ever would realize um, because we're, we're good at operating in ways that mask it, which sometimes is okay. You need to be able to operate, you know? Um, sometimes that's maturity, is being able to say, I'm afraid of this and I'm going to do it anyway. That's maturity. Like, do that hard thing. But I would encourage you in the private moments, peel back a couple layers and say, what am I so afraid of? What am I trying to hide? What am I trying to run from? And I think that'll be a path to some healing and to some deep fruit that God can produce in your life. I think fear just wreaks havoc on us. But I know it's so much easier for me to choose kindness and goodness when I remember I'm fighting a battle for my eternal character and not just for my temporary comfort, which is the popular thing to fight for, right? But when I'm more concerned with getting what I want and looking good to others, I tend to act pretty selfishly. Jesus here, I think, is saying, I'm gonna do the thing that's good for everybody and I'm gonna let my character speak for itself. Kindness and goodness come out. It's a beautiful thing. So here's the third one, the third principle I see operating that, that I think we can grab onto and live into so that kindness and goodness come out of our lives under pressure. The third one is this, what is cultivated in private will come out under pressure. What is cultivated in private will come out under pressure. So don't expect perfect treatment from imperfect people. Integrity lasts longer than popularity. And what is cultivated in private will come out under pressure. I think that this is the most foundational spiritual truth that lies underneath this story. Uh, and underneath, at least as we're applying it to our lives. And underneath really all the fruit of the Spirit. Paul tells the Galatians in that passage, you know, this is the fruit of the Spirit. So he tells them then keep in step with the Spirit. Um, which is really another way of saying um, live your life step by step, day by day in relationship with God led by the Spirit, and that's what makes it possible to live like Jesus. Live in relationship with God and step with the Spirit, being led by the Spirit, and that's how you live like Jesus lived. That's how we can achieve these kind of snapshot moments that we see in Jesus' life. If you cultivate a healthy, thriving, active spiritual relationship with God in private, then your public life will reflect it more and more, even when the pressure's on. But here's the thing, guys. If you don't have 
that private spiritual life. You can behave your way into kindness and goodness and self-control and the rest of them for a while, but eventually you'll break. You know what I mean? I've done that. I'm sure you guys have done that and feel like I got, I think I've got it. And then you just crack because you're trying so hard to manufacture it. But if you read through the gospels, here's what you'll see. You'll see more snapshots of Jesus taking time away alone to go pray. You'll see him saying that he only does what his father tells him to do. How does he know what his father tells him to do? Well, he goes away and he prays and he listens. That's how he knows. You'll see Jesus making big decisions and praying for hours the night before when he does that. Jesus' private life was led by the Spirit, so his public life produced the fruit of the Spirit. So think of, this is kind of silly, but I think it's helpful. Think of an orange, okay? If I squeeze an orange, what comes out of it? Orange juice, right? So because that's what's inside of it. So when you squeeze it, orange juice comes out because it's an orange. That's just what it is. But I took something round and painted it orange and gave it texture and looked like an orange. We could probably even make it smell like an orange. You could probably even make it feel like an orange, you know, like, kind of like a stress reliever kind of deal, you know? And you squeeze that, what's going to come out? Not orange juice, right? Because that's not what it is. That's not what it's made of. That's not what's inside. I told you it's silly, but I think it's helpful. Maybe you'll remember it. When the pressure is on, what's inside us comes out. If you were squeezed under pressure, what's going to come out? Because what's inside of you is what's going to come out. And so I want to get what's inside of me to be this kind of good, godly, spiritual fruit so that when the pressure's on, I'm not thinking, okay, now remember, act kindly. It's so that when the pressure's on, it's just what comes out of me because it's what I've been putting inside of me. Does that make sense? I want my private life to be cultivated that way so that my public life under pressure is what I want it to be. So Jesus knew God. He knew God's plan. He trusted God's plan. He had a deep relationship with God. So he had the, the ability to respond to harsh, unfair, unkind treatment with kindness and goodness. He was pressed in the garden, squeezed under pressure, and what came out? The fruit of the Spirit. I pray that the same would be true of you. I pray that the same would be true of me. But honestly, too often when the pressure's on, I don't like what comes out. Do you guys? Sometimes, you know, there are moments when it's like, man, I'm growing. And sometimes it's like, man, I hit a pressure moment and I don't like that. I don't like what I just saw. And I need to apologize and I need to clean it up. And then what I need to do is not say, I'll try harder next time. What I need to do is apologize, clean it up, repent, and then go back into my room and open my Bible, and open my journal, and say, God, help me grow. That's what I need. I can't fix it. I need to grow and get what's inside right, so that's what comes out under pressure. Um, and usually, like when the pressure's on for me, when the pressure's on for you, sometimes it's good, sometimes it's not, right? And it's usually so much less intense. The pressure I face is usually so much less intense than being betrayed by a good friend, isn't it? Most of the time, it's much less intense than that. It's usually more like my living room being messier than I prefer for longer than I want. And I walk in and I'm like, why are there toys everywhere? I'm like, why am I mad about that? Why can't I be kind and good and understand that I've got an eight-year-old and a two-year-old in my house and there's going to be toys everywhere? Why? Why is that pressure that cracks me? It's usually more like a project taking me longer than I thought I would. I feel embarrassed and I feel frustrated and I feel insecure. And so I react with defensiveness and I react with control and I react with all those things that are yucky. It's usually pressure like that that cracks me. Or sometimes it's like someone being upset with me and I have to go have that uncomfortable conversation and I don't want to. And that pressure makes me retreat instead of making me lean into God's strength and wisdom and do it. I don't know where the pressure is for you. That's some of mine. But I find it's usually not as intense 
as what Jesus faced in the garden, and my response usually isn't as healthy as what Jesus faced in the garden either. But I do find that when I live my life remembering that this is a fallen world with sinful people like me in it, that I tend to carry grace with me a lot more often for myself and for others. And when I really remember that deeply, it's so much easier to face those pressure situations and say, you know what, it's not gonna be perfect. That's okay, I have grace. And when I make all those small decisions that lead to long-term integrity and not short-term popularity, then my fear and my worry and my anger tend not to get the best of me. And I find that when my private prayer life and my time reading scripture is healthy and active and growing, then I tend to hear the spirit more clearly in every aspect of life. And when that's true, when I'm really connected to Jesus like that, then my life produces the kind of fruit I really want. We really want to produce this kind of fruit in our lives. Love, joy, peace, patience, kindness, goodness, faithfulness, gentleness, self-control. You can't force yourself into doing it. You're going to get squeezed at some point and what's inside comes out. We've got to get what's inside to be the stuff that we want on the outside. And that only happens when you spend time with your father. And he can do that and he can replace it and he can change our hearts. So that's my prayer for me. That's my prayer for you that we could become the kind of men that this stuff comes out of. Not that we force our way into it, but that we become from the inside out, fruit of the spirit kind of men. So that when the pressure's on in little situations and big situations and everywhere in between, when we face that pressure, when we face the squeezing, when we face the difficulty, we can look back and say, wow, that was the fruit of the spirit. I didn't produce that. That's only because the Holy Spirit is leading my life. That's my prayer for you. So let me pray for you guys and then uh, unpack this at your tables. God, we're so grateful for this time together today in your word. I'm grateful that your word is alive, that it's active, that it's powerful, that it's true. God, we believe it. We believe that Jesus faced this pressure and acted with wisdom and with kindness and with goodness and with integrity. And we wanna act that way also. God, we also believe that Jesus didn't just face this to give us a glimpse into how we can live with kindness and goodness. Jesus faced this because he went to the cross to faithfully and humbly, willingly, submissively die so that he could pay for our sins, sins like anger and jealousy and greed and sexual immorality and all those things Paul list, listed. Jesus died to save us from those things, to forgive us from those things. And then he rose again to say, hey, there's a new way of life available for you. Keep in step with my spirit. God, that's what we want. We wanna walk with your spirit so that we can live in the victory of Jesus and make an impact on the people around us. So it's in his name we pray, amen. Thanks for listening to this week's Bible teaching from Man Challenge at the Blankenbaker campus of Southeast Christian Church. For more information on how to get involved, reach out to us via the email address in our podcast description or find us on social media.